0: Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts and Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Chris Crane is back hosting with Anne with a new episode with special guest Brett Novi, CEO of Pharmacan, one of the nation's largest privately held vertically integrated cannabis companies with a dispensary cultivation and manufacturing footprint spanning eight states across Illinois, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Massachusetts, New York, Michigan, and Colorado. In this episode, Chris and Anne connect with Brett to learn more about the core business of Pharmacan and what makes this private operator unique amongst its contemporaries vying for market share. Our hosts also touch on Pharmacan's recent acquisition of Colorado operator LiveWell, interstate commerce and federal cannabis reform, and what excites Brett most about Pharmacan's future. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Brett Novi, CEO of Pharmacan.
1: So hey, Brett, uh, it's great to, uh, great to be here with you. You and I have known each other for a few years, but I think this is the first time we're like formally sitting down to a podcast together. So welcome.
2: Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to chat.
1: Excellent. So let's let's just jump right in. Um, let, let's start. Let's start at the beginning. Um, tell us a bit about Brett Novi. Uh, a bit about your background. Uh, what you were doing before you got into this business. I'm, I'm assuming you're not a cannabis lifer here. And uh, and what brought you into cannabis?
2: Sure. My my background is actually uh, traditionally trained, for lack of a better way to phrase it, in accounting and finance. So uh, I started my career actually at Arthur Anderson, back when that company still existed, to sort of date myself a little bit, and um, was in that field until 2016. And I actually, so unlike most CEOs in the space, I'm I'm not a founder of Pharmacan. I was brought in by the seed investors who I had worked with in the financial services industry previously, And I was brought in initially to help provide some financial acumen to the company right around the time where PharmaCan was about to become revenue generating. So uh, the way it worked is PharmaCan was awarded the most number of licenses in Illinois by count of licenses. So four dispensaries and two cultivation and processing facilities. And then about a year later was awarded the number one license in New York which was a full vertical, so four dispensaries in a grow and processing facility. And the first year, a year and a half, was really spent building out that found, those foundational assets. And then once those assets were built um, and about to become operational, that's when I was brought in uh, to, to help on the finance accounting side of the business. And just over time as we grew. I found myself getting more and more involved first in sales, the wholesale side of the business, and then more and more in the day to day operations. You know, the actual growing and processing of the products um, and then about a little over three years ago, because of the experience that I gathered in the industry I uh, became
3: CEO. I feel like that's a very, um, it's a a very common thing in, in the cannabis industry for, for people to, you know, who are, who are in this space, um, either as, as one thing. So as, as accounting, as operations, as, you know, the grow, but you, you find that you're, you're learning way more of the business than you like than any other typical industry. So, you know, like it sounds like that was, you know, you didn't come in, you know, with aspirations of being the CEO, but your, you know, your experience kind of kind of took you there. Did you do you do you agree with that statement that you know, cannabis is kind of unique in that in that like you learn from seed to sale very quickly?
2: 100%. You have to in order to be successful. That's how all of these companies even the largest MSOs started as the smallest, most scrappy workforce in this fledgling industry that nobody really knew if it, if we were going to make it or not. Yeah. And, and when you're facing that, it's one of those things, it's the analogy I always gave, which was, uh, it's like a sports analogy where, Hey, the, the, somebody, there's a fo- the football's on the field. Like I'm just going to pick it up and run it into the end zone. Right. I don't care what position I'm playing but there's a loose ball and I know that we wanna score. And so I'm gonna pick it up and I'm gonna run it in. And that it, this whole industry was created by people that started in a specific lane, whether it be an attorney or account, you a know, real estate was another really popular background mm-hmm. for, for founders and people had to become and transform themselves into sort of the jack of all. Um, and, and in many instances, master of all, uh, and that's the difficulty about this industry. And I think that, I think it's the hardest industry in the world. Um, but I think that's kind of the attraction to it, which is what the heck do you do once you're in? Like what, what, what else would you do? Like nothing is as exciting as this, so
3: yeah. Well, I definitely agree there. So let's talk specifically um, about Pharmacan itself. So, what makes the company unique, unique and really stand out among, you know, the the larger MSOs, the you know, the Cura Leafs, the Crescos, the True Leaves of the world.
2: Yeah. So the, the first thing is obviously we're private uh, today. I think that that allows us to take a, l- a little bit different. Perspective. I, I shouldn't say a, a more longer term perspective on some of the operational decisions that we make, which I, I feel like in this environment is is helpful and beneficial to us. You know, we, we like I said, my background was in accounting and finance, where we're very financially disciplined. Not not that others aren't, but we we do sort of look at all opportunities in this industry, organic and. Um, acquisitions through the lens of return on invested capital. I know there's a lot of other companies that do that as well. Some of the larger companies, but um, I would say that our growth opportunities relative to the other MSOs is a little bit unique. We still have some room to acquire additional assets in a lot of the states that are limited license that we operate where we're operating below the, the license caps. Illinois is a good example. We only have eight stores. That's obviously a great market. We could have 10. So there's sort of that that growth there, uh, Colorado and Michigan, two of the top three markets. We've made a decision to enter those markets. We think that there's lots of opportunities for consolidation in those markets, and we have a strong foundational assets to build around there. So mm-hmm. you know, we think that we could, if we can get to a 20% market share in both those states, it's 800 million of additional incremental revenue. Um, those opportunities are. are are somewhat unique to us relative to a lot of the other larger companies, just because we are in those markets at scale. Um, and then, you know, I would say the last and most, uh, one of the most important differentiators with us is our strategic partnership with Pronos. So,
1: can you can you go into that a little bit? You you actually t- touch on a couple things that I think we want to go into here. But uh, you mentioned the strategic partnership with Kronos. Tell us a little more about that. What is that? Uh, I mean, what, you know, I don't know if all of our listeners are familiar with Kronos. So maybe explain a little bit of who they are and why that gives you guys such an edge.
2: Sure. So Kronos is um, a portfolio company of Altria. Obviously, um, Altria owns a significant stake in Kronos. Currently, Kronos is operating their global cannabinoid company focused on the rest of the world. And they invested a significant amount of capital into Pharmacan probably about maybe a little over a year, a year and a half ago. And we just view them as a great longer term partner for us potentially as uh, the barriers start to fall down and we could and we could think more um, more globally, and, um, and and how to align ourselves with strategic partners that currently aren't participating in the U.S. cannabis market, but that we know someday will. So, so that you know, that was um, how how we our investors thought about the opportunity with Kronos and the partnership with Kronos. and, and there's other ways that we could potentially work together. Um, in the future as well and, and we'll explore those those opportunities uh, as they uh, avail themselves to us
1: yeah I would imagine if uh, you know federal legalization if and if and when federal legalization becomes a thing here in the US that could present some real opportunities to have a, you know an affiliation with a company like that yeah exactly yep. Excellent. So, you know, you, you also were talking about acquisitions that you've made. You mentioned Michigan and Colorado um, so on, on the Colorado front, although actually this this also impacts uh, Michigan. You know, you announced some exciting news uh, earlier this year with the acquisition of LiveWell. Um They obviously are, I believe, believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the largest producer in, or largest cultivator in both Michigan and Colorado, or at least a a top producer in in, in both of those states, as well as they they have this chain of boutique dispensaries called The Clinic, uh, which gives you guys, I believe, 26 storefronts in Colorado. Um, So tell us a bit more about that acquisition and, uh, and the value that it adds to Pharmacan and your portfolio.
2: Sure. So just to clarify... Currently, we're operating 22 LiveWell branded retail stores, and the, the clinic is an acquisition of an additional four-store retail chain that we expect to close here uh, before the end of the month, and um, we'll we'll run those as, as the clinic stores for now and eventually rebrand those as LiveWell most likely. So that'll give us the clinic plus, so the four clinic stores plus the 22 LiveWell stores uh, totals at 26 store dispensary footprint in Colorado. But the, the thesis behind LiveWell and and was a, a twofold. One, you're gaining the, the leader in we were able to partner with the leader in both in two of the top three most competitive and largest cannabis legal cannabis markets in the world in those states those two markets being the states of Colorado and Michigan. But also we needed to, and we were looking for it for a while at Pharmacan, just to rewind the clock back. Pharmacan was created, we created a lot of value by winning licenses through competitive application processes, right? So the evolution of Pharmacan was identifying attractive markets that we wanted to uh, participate in, applying for licenses, winning those licenses. Then the next sort of phase was Building out all those infrastructures, opening all those stores, opening all those cultivations and processing facilities. And then the, the last part was actually becoming operational and competing in those markets, right? And the last part, the fundamental belief was uh, some of these limited license states that we currently operate it eventually are all going to look like a full competitive market like a Colorado or Michigan, where there's no there's no limit on the number of dispensaries and there's no limit on the number of cultivation and processing facilities that could be operating in the state. So like a true, a true, real, a real market environment. And we felt that we needed to acquire that expertise on how to be, how to offer the greatest value to the customer. And what do I mean by that? I mean, how to consistently grow the highest quality product and offer that high quality product to the customer at the best value to the customer. And that was something that wasn't innate to Pharmacan. We, and we were trying to learn it and we were making a lot of progress there. But if you think about a company like LiveWell, you know, Pharmacan, for all practical purposes, we started growing cannabis in 2016 and LiveWell was growing medical cannabis, Is I think it was in as early as 2009. So there was that, seven years of learning that they had on us relative uh, on the learning curve of how to grow cannabis at scale and we just felt that that knowledge that i quote unquote ip for lack of a better term was was invaluable and so a big part of the thesis was hey look we need to take these practices that livewell has mastered and we need to overlay those on these assets that Pharmacan has built historically in these limited licensed states in the, in the Northeast to, to ensure our survival and to ensure that we could be a top three competitor in each of these markets longer term. And so that, that was sort of, that's how it all kind of came together.
3: You know, in uh, talking about the Vera Life brand, um, you know, this is kind of a, a, a nice segue to your um, kind of recently announced partnership with the Almond Brothers on a new line of products. And this idea of celebrity branding has really been an interesting one to follow in this space. Why? Why did you partner with the Almond Brothers, and how do you see celeb brands working in this in this ecosystem? of, of cannabis, both brands, but also, you know, how does it fit as a part of your, your larger strategy? Um, you know, just to kind of build off of what you just talked about, is it, is it harder because the market is still so segmented or does this give you something, um, new and different and fresh that, um, that can help push the Verilife brand forward?
2: So it's the latter, right? Like the the hope is that we're able to, Find something that resonates with our customers and patients that helps promote the the bare Life or the Live Well retail brands, uh, or that also makes you know that branded product attractive to our wholesale partners, and they want to carry that uh, in their in their stores as well. But the, like the truth of the matter is, we what roles do these celebrity brands have to play? Is is that we don't know right now. I, we have we we think. You know, there's been some successes and there's been some failures. And so I think, for example, with the Almond Brothers specifically, we're trying to run a test just to learn. We need mm-hmm. to learn about these things. Everything's so fluid and so dynamic. Our, our number one priority, though, is to build our own brands, right? Um, we want, so our, the, our product brand uh, in the legacy Pharmacan is Matter. So, matter flower, matter vapes. And on the LiveWell side, uh, it's the LiveWell branded flowers, hashtag hash, you know, magnitude vapes. And so, what we're doing is we're taking the Pharmacan brands from the legacy Pharmacan markets, bringing them to the legacy LiveWell markets, and vice versa. And we're going to see what wins. Um, but at the end of the day, I just firmly believe that it's all about customer value. It's the customer journey their, the, 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 and their experience. And if you could offer a great product at a great price and deliver on the customer experience as well, that's what's gonna win. And I'm not sure yet there's any brands out there that could overcome one of those parts missing right Mm. over time. So Mm -hmm. if one of those parts is missing over time, I feel like those brands, while they might be winning today, they're not going to be long-term viable slash sustainable. And so it's a great opportunity. And I think that's why you see all the large MSOs trying to master the operational piece, the the, the most important part, because that's how you're going to build a long-term brand. And, And right now the name on the package, doesn't really matter as much as it will, you know, 10 years from now. There's no such thing as a Coca-Cola, for example, in this industry it just hasn't right. been created consistently across all markets, etc. There's just not that groundswell of consumer recognition for any one brand, in my opinion. So that's why we're focused on, on our brand first. But you have to test this stuff out to learn. It's, it's kind of one of those situations.
1: Yeah. That all makes, that all makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, you talk about, testing things out, being nimble. Um, and and I think it's, you know, it's no secret that in order to survive in this industry, operators need leadership that can pivot, right? Or can evolve because um, market conditions are always changing and you're always going to face unforeseen challenges. Uh, I think, you know, maybe the biggest one that we've seen in the industry, and, and this is not at all unique to cannabis, was COVID and the challenges that came with uh, with adjusting to you know new protocols and and just adjusting to COVID in general, um, so you know, be interested to hear how did PharmaCan handle that and, and how have you guys been successful in overcoming the challenges uh, throughout the COVID era?
2: This just gets back to part of the DNA was the scrappy, whatever it takes, get it done type psychology. Right? There was no first of all a tremendous sh- kudos to all of the employees nationwide in this industry that stood tall during what was very scary times in this country when people didn't know what the heck was going on, but there was no government bailouts for our industry. And we were all deemed essential businesses and we all went to work every single day and ensured the survival of this industry. So that should be the biggest takeaway from anybody when we look back on history here is how the passion of the employees and pharmacan employees, but it wasn't just us. We, it was everybody. Everybody stood tall and got it done and that it was a time where you know most every other business was shut down, but our people and this came to work every single day and made it happen. so, um, but but again, it gets back to this, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. And then from my position, it was constant communication, constant communication, um, being transparent, being honest, and having team members that felt empowered to solve problems independently, right? Because there was every store, every cultivation site, they all had their unique set of circumstances, or challenges or problems that they had to deal with on the fly. And if everybody just kind of looked at each other and said, what do we do? What do we do? It, it, the the whole, everything would have crumbled under its own weight, but that's not what happened. So I, I really think that that, it was just sort of highlights that that, what happened during COVID highlights the type of people that are in this industry that just, they just get it done. You know, people just figure it out, tack the problem head on, and just get it done. And and that's, it's, it's really cool to be a part of that.
3: I almost think it's in the nature of, you know, the, the industry itself, like the, you know, they've always played without a rule book. Um, and, and so it, it's almost like they were able to take that and, and, um, and, execute on, like you said, the the problems that were showing up, like no one knew how to deal with any of this. And the fact that they just kept showing up and plugging along and doing it under, you know, incredible circumstances. And, you know, I remember thinking like when it was deemed an essential service, thinking that this was going to change everything, that now it's an essential service, like we can't go back. And I feel like some of that momentum has been lost. And now we're back in like this mire of, you know, legislation and, and all of that stuff. But I do think it's it's like it's almost like this industry, the people in this industry were like, were were bred for that challenge. Um, and I, I, I think you're right. Kudos goes to to all of them who who kept the business afloat and kept jobs and kept people, you know, with their medication. And yeah, I think it was. A really interesting time, to say the least. Um, but I, I do want to pivot and talk a little bit about, uh, you know, our, our our audience here for the for the Green Rush is largely um, investor based, um, and we've talked to a number of public companies uh, about their endless struggles to navigate the public markets. But PharmaCan remains private, as you said, um, and it really is one of the nation's most successful vertically integrated shops in the cannabis space. Why stay private? What are the, what are the advantages being offered to you there?
2: Um, I think it gets back to my, some of my opening comments, which is, this is a long, is a long game, right? Cannabis and the evolution and the breaking down of barriers and the changing, changing of laws, etc. cetera. And so to be able to, for us, this is just me, right? I, this is what I believe is, a, is an advantage for Pharmacan right now is that I don't have to think in 30-day increments, mm-hmm. right? Our team doesn't have to execute based on, in, in third, sorry, 30-day, 90-day increments, three-month increments, right? We get to think ahead and we get to plan out and make decisions today that might actually... Uh, negatively impact our quote-unquote short-term financial results to optimize our financial results and our operational performance 12 months from now, 18 months from now, 24 months from now. And for that, I am very, very appreciative. And I do believe that that has been a benefit to to us, specifically the last year or so. Um, I will tell you that becoming a public company is also important to us. We There's lots of benefits to being public as well. So just like everything else in life, it's sort of a trade uh, between the benefits, the, the pluses and minuses of being public versus the pluses and minuses of being private. Now I'll tell you being private has also um, impacted us in ways like we're, we're a little bit restricted right now in some of the acquisition opportunities or the MA opportunities that we could undertake because given where the market is, there's not a lot of sellers that are interested in a private company stock, for example. So I believe that if we were a public company right now, we would have the opportunity to execute on some M&A um, that we've identified that we can't currently execute on. Now that, That's sort of a temporal thing because I think as, as the market swings back, people will be more and more comfortable uh, taking Pharmacan stock. Uh, but, you know, again, pluses and minuses. The biggest thing to me is the operational. You're built. We're building a business for the long term. And so to be able to make decisions that impact the long term most favorably and not worrying so much about the short-term implications, that's the real benefit for us and our shareholders. And New, New York is a perfect example of that um, uh, with New York becoming recreational here. In the near term, you know, since the beginning of time, we've been able to over allocate resources for the eventuality of New York becoming a recreational market. And so we feel like we're positioned in the top one or two companies currently in New York to capitalize on that op- on, on this opportunity that's coming here in the next you know, quarter or two quarters.
1: Oh, that's. I think that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, I've I've certainly experienced both uh, uh, both sides of that, right? Having been with Forefront when it was uh, uh, private and having gone through the public company offering. And you're right. I mean, I I think uh, I think a lot of folks uh, or a lot of the the executives in the public companies would be thrilled with the flexibility. Uh, in decision making that you have that comes with being private, um, and so I, you know, it, it, it might be a blessing in disguise. But you're right, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, you know, moving on a little bit from that, uh, I wrote a column recently in Forbes that you were quoted in. So thank you for helping provide some perspective there um, about the issue of interstate commerce, and this is a hot topic right now. Uh, just Yesterday, I believe, uh, yesterday, the day before, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom of California signed a bill that would ostensibly allow for some form of interstate commerce with some kind of federal either permission or guidance. Um, There's bills working their way through other states that might be more natural importer states. Um, Whether or not these could actually be implemented, I think, is is a major open question. But there's a lot of debate right now at the federal level about comprehensive reform, I know it's not going to get done this year, but if and when comprehensive reform does happen, with the question of whether or not and when interstate commerce should come into play uh, is, uh, is is a really hot topic. And so I'd be curious to get um, your perspective and in particular how Pharmacan is thinking about the future of interstate commerce and you, know, and, and you can go into federal reform in general.
2: Sure. So first of all, interstate commerce is inevitable. It's just the question is when, in my view, and I think from our perspective, and hopefully it came through, I read your article, Chris, it was a great piece, and thank you uh, for the opportunity to be quoted in it. But for me, it's, it's the process by which it happens. And, and what does that mean? What do I mean by that? Well, I think that um, it needs to be thoughtful. And you need to all the stakeholders should have a voice in how you transition these independent state license frameworks, where every single state has their own regulations, their own rules, their own laws, their own thoughts, and they. um And how do you transition that to a fully federally legal interstate commerce type frameworks? So I won't bore you with how I think that the sequencing will likely happen, but I'll just say that it's super important to get this right because there's a lot at at stake here. And what you don't wanna have happen is you don't want to do some knee jerk type action that essentially wipes out all, all the good that these states have done over the last decade to create these state licensed market structures that have created a lot of jobs have created a lot of tax revenues that have gone into schools and roads et cetera. and that would be to me just it would be so destructive to all the hard work that everybody has put in to this industry for the last 10 years that I just I'm just hopeful that there is some thoughtful process that there's plenty of opportunity for new incumbents to be successful, but it it doesn't have to be a binary outcome. It's not like, it doesn't have to be that the legacy operators uh, are are adversely impacted and there's this massive new market created for new entrants and vice versa. Like there's, there's a way there's ways for everybody to win. And I just, I just, my goal is to ensure that that happens. That there's no there's no winners and losers. That everybody wins.
1: Well, I guess let's 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 talk a little bit more about this. And I appreciate that. I think that's a very thoughtful take, right? There are there is a lot of business and, and jobs that have been built up under the current system. But you're also right in that you know interstate commerce is inevitable. So let me put something like this to you: if if You know, if a couple of these states were to pass a pact like this, let's say Colorado were to pass something saying that they, you know, that they could be an exporter state and New Jersey, for example, passed a law allowing for the import of products from exporter states. You know, given that your LiveWell, uh, you know, through the LiveWell acquisition, you're now you know, one of, if not the largest uh, producers in Colorado, would you look to take advantage of this and start trying to ship new Colorado product or even Michigan product to states that were, states that were open for, for imports?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, look, we, we know that the market's going to evolve. We don't know how, but we plan to, you know, take we plan to be a, a um, operator in this industry under any, structure. So yes, the answer is yes. We, we, we plan to evolve with the industry just like everybody else does. Right. So certainly. Excellent.
1: Um, cool. Well, I think, uh, I mean, I think we're good there. And do you want to uh, jump back in here?
3: Yeah. I mean, so I guess while we're, we're talking future, what is your ideal end game for Pharmacan? Are you looking to be acquired exploring, uh, you know, international expansion?
2: So we're not exploring international expansion right now because there's so much opportunity for us in the us we're only in eight states so our eight state footprint at steady state maturity is like a 27 or 28 billion dollar addressable market you know we've kind of identified our next seven target states for expansion and those states in a long-term uh maturity we think there's like 31 billion dollar addressable market so already so the next seven is already double the opportunity for us relative to our existing aid, right? So there's a lot to do in the short term, just in the US. Um, I would say, and this is kind of a cliche answer, but that's what we've always said, which is, we're just focused on building a great company. Because if we build a great company, there'll be multiple paths for us in the future. And so the primary goal is build a great company. We've obviously identified great partners that we think um, will benefit us strategically in the long term. And so we've we've built those relationships as well and, and hope to continue to build upon and nurture those relationships. But really, there is no planned anything. The only plan is to just execute on the opportunity in front of us.
3: Well, so then, uh, can we do a little shorter term future? So we're looking at, um, approaching Q4, which is just bonkers. I, there was a meme the other day on Instagram that is like, you know, we're X amount of days from 2023 and I'm still processing, uh, 2020. So, um, (laughs) so I can't believe we're, we're in Q4, but what's ahead for the year, um, that, that you're most excited about.
2: For us, -hmm. it's New York. It's always Mm -hmm. been New York. I shouldn't say it's, it's been Illinois and New York, right? Those were the two most critical pieces from the day Pharmacan was founded. And um, there's lots of naysayers about New York, you know, what that market's going to become or concerns about it. We think it's going to be a fantastic market and we're ready to prove it to, to folks. So our entire organization. Is focused. We always talk about priorities, and if there's anyone's trying to prioritize, and there's anything related to New York on their list, that just jumps to the top. So, you know, there's a lot going on there, and we're we're focused on that. We think that um, when we built up our financial projections, we think there's an opportunity for us to be selling adult use, regulated, legally licensed product in New York is as early as Q2. And we think that there may be an opportunity for us to be supporting that market from a wholesale perspective uh, as early as Q1 or maybe even Q4. So we're excited about both of those opportunities and we'll be there. We'll be there uh, when when the state Asked us to be there, we'll, we'll be there in full support and ensure that, that, that market successful.
1: I I think I'd like to drill down a little more on this one. And you, you, you mentioned that there are a lot of folks that are skeptical about New York and I've certainly seen that uh, in the industry. And look, I'm a native New Yorker. I, I uh, you know, I, I hope this is a smashing success, but you know, why, why are you so optimistic about New York in particular? And you know why are you less concerned than you know than some others are about um, you know issues of oversaturation, gray market or illicit market competition, right? Some of the things that uh, you know that I think are being held out as some of the you know these these big concerns about the
2: state. I think everyone's concerned that New York's going to become the next California, right? I think like if you if you drill down to the most basic, that's sort of the headline concern. From my perspective. I just don't believe that to be the case because one, there is an exhibit A as to how not to have a very successful um, regulated legal market that's leaving a lot of tax revenues, a lot of jobs on the table, et cetera. And then the other thing for me is look no further than New Jersey. I just don't believe that New York wants to allow New Jersey to be the example of how of how to successfully roll out a legal regulated cannabis market in the Northeast, right? Like that would be not a good, not a good look for New York. And, and, and all, and all sort of, you know, joking aside, like there's a lot at stake here for a lot of people. Um, and it behooves the state of New York to get it right. And I just have full confidence that they will. And there's, and you already see them, they're starting to do a lot of the right things, Um, they approach every state approaches it differently, but I just believe that in the end, it's going to be a phenomenal market and, um, you know, we're excited to, we're excited for it to start.
1: Awesome. So yeah, yeah, I guess I want to stay here just for a minute and I, and I, Again, I'm a New Yorker. Uh, not anymore. Haven't lived there in, in quite a while. But you know, born and raised. Uh, well, technically, I was born in Florida, but uh, grew up in New York <laughs> City. Uh, I like to say born and raised, although we moved back when I was just a baby. Um, I, I'd be curious to uh, talk a little bit here. You talk a little bit more about this, the illicit market or the gray market that sprung up in New York. Now, I, I've been back you know, back to my hometown uh, a few times over the past few months and, you know, walking around the Times Square area, Midtown area, Washington Square Park in in, uh, downtown, I've been amazed at how much cannabis is just being sold openly in storefronts through like converted ice cream trucks, Washington Square Park, there's there's tables set up all throughout the park, which is amazing really? to me. Oh my, yeah, absolutely. I have not
3: been back in a while, but that's uh, surprising to me.
1: It was, I mean, as somebody who you know, when I was in high school, um, you know, people would go to Washington Square Park to buy cannabis, um, and you know, it was it was a little more uh, clandestine back then, but, you know, you sat, you used to sit down in Washington square park and somebody would sit down next to you and they you really know, need to need some weed looking to score. Right. And then you could do the whole, like, you know, walk away from the park, a little handshake. Right. And, um, that, you know, that classic, that you know, the classic sort of street corner drug deal, um, that very much happened there now, you know, 30 years after they quote unquote cleaned up Washington square park, um, there's just people with card tables. And you know, packs of you know packs of joints and and jars of weed that they're just selling right there in the open. I mean, it's it absolutely blew my mind. Do you think that this is gonna continue? Do you see this as a threat to the legal businesses? Like, how do you see this all shaking out? And is this a genie that can get put back in the bottle?
2: So it's it's the classic decriminalization before regulated market is kind of rolled out, right? Uh, I think for me, it's proof of demand. Look, look, look at the. Uh, there's a lot of demand in that state, obviously, and I believe that you know cease and desist letters have gone out. The goal will be for the state to find a way to transition those gray market operators into the regulated market, and the opportunity for a company like ours, PharmaCan. Is going to be to continue to serve the medical patients in that state to effectively run our what we believe will be three adult use dispensaries in that state but most importantly the long larger long-term opportunity is to be the number one wholesaler of cannabis products to the licensed dispensaries in that state and so if there's a successful transition of the gray market into the regulated market. We'll be supplying we'll be supplying the cannabis that's tested, grown in New York, and then ultimately sold through all of the retailers that are currently operating operating in this gray area.
3: So the, we often ask this question um, you know toward towards the end of our our interview. Um, I'm going to tweak it a little bit, but we, we typically ask, what story do you think is being missed by the cannabis industry? Or what's that one story that you think deserves more attention? Um, my question to you is, if you were to open up um, the the front page of the business section of the New York Times tomorrow, what's your dream story about the cannabis industry?
2: That's uh, so would be a rescheduling of cannabis such that 280E no longer applies that is the watershed moment Mm -hmm. for me. So that's my dream headline. (laughs) I think the dream headline for pretty much everybody in this industry that pays their federal income taxes.
3: You'd be surprised, honestly. And Chris, maybe correct me if I'm wrong. That's the first time I've heard that as the dream headline. So many people look at it as like, you know, my company, my brand is the number one selling brand in cannabis. It's very like, it's a little navel gazy, but, um, you know, for, for an industry industry wide, that's the first I've heard that.
2: Yeah. Look, I, it, to me, it's, um, it's the number one. It's always the number one issue in my mind that we, as an industry need to address. Um, and so I think that it kills small business it kills social equity mm-hmm. it, kills, it kills all businesses to be yeah. honest and if we want this industry to survive and thrive and grow which which I do um then I think that that's that what that's we need a united front to get that fixed there's a lot of money that could be going towards, are lowering the cost of our products to our customers and patients um you know hiring additional uh employees expanding into new states paying our employees better wages improving our benefits to our you know like more capital projects that create more jobs that if there's so much loss there's so much leakage out of uh, companies in this industry that i think that not to mention the the risk of like personal financial ruin Mm -hmm. um, for the investors and for the small businesses and for the large businesses that to me, it's just, it's a no brainer. It's the number one thing.
1: Yeah. I actually like to stay on this for a minute. This is something you and I have talked about this a few times um, just in, you know, in, in private conversations Uh, you know, we hear a lot about the need for banking reform, and obviously, I don't. I, don't I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, man. I don't think anybody's going to argue that that's a real need in the industry, um, right? I mean, it's been sort of the number one priority for for a long time for a reason. But that said, you don't hear nearly as much, uh, especially these days, about 280e reform. I mean, you know, we've got a real chance at getting safe banking passed this year in Congress. I see no indication that, you know, even though they're now talking about like safe banking plus, right, a broader reform package, I see no indication that 280E is being seriously discussed as part of that package. Um, So I guess, you know, number one, why do you think it is that 280E reform hasn't gotten the same kind of traction as banking reform? Um, And like, what can we do? What can we do to help bring this front of mind, uh, the front of mind of regulators um, and then you know, just and, and if you can, I mean, I, I would love for you to expand a little bit more on like why this is such a huge killer for folks in the industry, uh, right? Given the
2: fact that like this, it isn't being talked about in the same way. Yeah, I think it's a very complicated and much more nuanced issue. Like safe banking, everybody can kind of—it's very easy to understand, and it's a great first step, and it's a very important first step. And so I think, from my perspective, it's like, hey, let's get let's show the world that our government is actually paying attention and that the industry is important enough that the, the the individuals that we elect to represent us are voting on cannabis related matters and that's safe banking. And that's why I don't want to underestimate that. I think that's so important. It's going to be a watershed moment and have huge implications that are positive for the industry unequivocally, no doubt in my mind. 280e is much more complicated, and it takes a lot more explanation. A lot of people don't even know it exists or even understand the the implications of of 280E, right? Mm -hmm. And so the the fact that we're paying, we don't get to deduct any of our overhead expenses like a normal business, and we have to pay taxes at our gross profit level, which is kind of unheard of. And then you get into this whole, like, how does this even possible? Why does this exist? And the answer is well, you know. Look, it was—it's uh, this—it's arc, this arcane law from uh, the '80s, and it really shouldn't even be applicable. And when it was written into the tax code, there was never this this concept of this dislocation between state and federal law, right? And so it's just there's just all this there's just all this. It's it's a very complicated topic, and I think that that's why. Um, the industry's focused on the most obvious and simplest uh, uh, um, reform as a starting point. And then I think what you'll see is once that happens, I think you'll see 280 rise to the top very quickly.
3: Love it. Well, Brett Novi of Pharmacan, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it um, and look forward to following you guys uh, into 2023 and seeing what exciting things you, you do.
2: Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed it. So good to catch up.
3: Our thanks again to Brett Novi of Pharmacan. To stay updated on all things Pharmacan, make sure to visit their website and follow their social channels. Um, check them out at pharmacan.com. That's spelled P H A R M A C A N N. Dot com, And as always, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. If you want to chat with us, you can find us on Twitter at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast or drop us an email at Green Rush at KCSA. We love your feedback. We love your guest ideas. We love your pitches. Um, I apologize if we don't respond to all of them, but thank you so much and keep them coming. Uh, and lastly, don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay. One take.